The Brompton Time Machine. In an old cemetery in the west of London, half hidden by trees, there stands a tall, imposing mausoleum. It's clad in granite and marble and is decorated with Egyptian hieroglyphs. It's the tallest structure in the cemetery, and on each of its four sides is a doorway. But three of the doorways are blank. The fourth, has a copper metal door in it with a keyhole. But it's said there is no key for this, the Courtois Mausoleum. I'm Stephen Coates. I'm associated with a band called The Real Tuesday World. You may have heard of us. You can check us out at TuesdayWorld.com, if not. But also, I'm a writer, a researcher, an investigator of sorts. And here in this old room, on my desk are scattered many papers, most of which are to do with the story of the Courtois Mausoleum. Because many strange rumours have circulated about the mausoleum over recent years. Apart from there being no key, it's said there is no plan of the mausoleum, or even a record of it being built. Most odd for a structure this size. But stranger rumours have been circulating. Rumours that say, in fact, the Courtois Mausoleum is, or contains, a time machine. Now I'd like you to set aside your scepticism and come with me to the mausoleum. And I would like you to use your imagination to travel in time with me. On three of the sides, of the mausoleum are the blank panels I mentioned. Let's fill them in with scenes that will tell the strange story of the Brompton time machine. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, on the first panel, the first blank side of the mausoleum, a scene starts to materialise. A beautiful room, an interior, round about the year 1800. In this room, which is decorated with wonderful paintings and objects, there's a little piano in the corner, there is a young man sitting at a table, a handsome young man. But he's looking rather pale. And in front of him are papers, which he's been rustling through, and he now has his head in his hands. His face is despairing, for he has read something that has terrified him. He sits back in his chair, puts his hands to his head, then suddenly he picks up an ornate pistol, puts it into his mouth, and blows his brains out. Alerted by the noise, 
A young, pretty maidservant rushes into the room. She sees the bloodied head. She sees the hand holding the pistol. She screams and then falls to the floor, weeping bitterly. Now, this young man was Charles Boothby, sometimes called by his friends Prince Boothby. He was what we might call a rake, a young dandy, a friend of Beau Brummel, come to London from his country estates, sent there by his family to educate him, no doubt. But like many young men, he'd chosen to educate himself with all the delights that London had to offer. Wine, women, song, parties, carriages, nights at the theatre. It all costs money. And like many young men in his position, Charles Prince Boothby had been spending more money than he'd received. And in fact, he'd fallen into debt, perhaps bad gambling debts. He'd been borrowing money, but that money too had run out. And now it was time to pay the piper. The letters on his desk had revealed that he was horribly in debt. He faced not only ruin, possibly, but shame, public shame, the public shame of his family, the public shame of his friends. Perhaps some of those friends were not such good friends that they would stick by him. Now he had no money. Charles Prince Boothby, on that evening in 1800, decided to escape. Escape his debts, escape his debtors, the moneylenders, the sharks that were circling. So he put a gun in his mouth and blew his life away. Okay, well, that's our first scene. Let's walk round the mausoleum and look in another panel. Here, as we peer, we see the outline of an old man hurrying along a road. It's a busy street, it's Covent Garden, it's still 1800, and the noises of the market traders, women, men, children shouting and crying, the squeal of animals, the smell of vegetables, the pungent smells of London surround us. We follow the old man down an alleyway towards a tavern called the Cooper's Arms. He enters the tavern and he takes his seat in the corner and he looks around him with his beady eyes. He's looking for somebody in particular. He's looking for a young woman. But who is he? With his battered hat and his dirty coat, one might mistake him for a pauper, but he was no pauper. He was a very rich man. His name was John Courtoy. But when he'd come to London 50 years previously, his name had been Nicolas Jacquinet. He was French. He'd come to London, as so many people have, to make his fortune. But unlike so many people, he had made his fortune. And how had he done it? 
Well, when he arrived, he was a periwig maker. That is, he made wigs and dressed wigs for the world to do. You wouldn't be seen dead outside in London in those days, male or female, without a wig on your head. But he also seems to have operated a kind of employment agency for the world to do. So if you'd lost your butler or needed a new housemate, for a fee, John Courtois could help out. But even that wasn't enough to explain his fortune. It seems that somewhere along the line, he'd also become a money lender, lending money at a very high rate of interest to those well-to-do people who perhaps weren't so well-to-do at the moment, to tide them over. Perhaps young dandies, young rakes, who'd outspent their allowance and needed cash to pay off other debtors. So as he sits there in the corner of the room, he's actually one of the richest men in London. The girl who is the focus of his attention, however, is a very poor person. Her name is Hannah, Hannah Peters. And the reason that she's working in the pub is that she'd previously worked for a certain Charles Prince Boothby. And after his death, it needed some other form of employment. John Courtois, in his 70s, has taken a shine to the 20-year-old Hannah Peters. In fact, he offers her a job as his housekeeper. But we know the way this story's gonna go, don't we? Within a few months, Hannah was pregnant. And within a few years, she'd given birth to three daughters, all who were given the surname Courtois. Though John himself never married her, she took on the name Hannah Courtois as a matter of convenience, let's say. And when John died 18 years later, she inherited his entire fortune, though not without some trials along the way. So this girl would come from an abusive father who'd gone to work for the rake, Charles Prince Boothby, and seen him blow his head off, had risen through the social strata of London to become one of the richest widows in the city. Let's go round to the third side of the mausoleum to discover what scene we'll see next. We see the seaside. It's Brighton. The pier stretches out towards the horizon. There's lots of people parading up and down on the shore. There's a hubbub. There are little groups of men smoking, maybe drinking from hip flasks. There are little groups of ladies with parasols giggling and laughing. There are children rushing around and playing. There are people selling sweets and candies and all sorts of seaside things. But there's something going on. Out in the sea, there is a ship, and many people are looking towards it. Every now and again, the hubbub rises as though something's about to happen, and suddenly, ah, oh, nothing happens. People go back to talking. People seem to be getting a bit bored 
Some are starting to drift away. Some of the men in hats with notebooks are shaking their heads at each other, as if to say, I told you so. When suddenly, there's a huge explosion. The ship out at sea is on fire. And as the spectators wildly cheer, it lists to one side and begins to sink. A little group of men who are gathered around one man in particular congratulate him, shaking his hand. He accepts their congratulations as is due, speaks to a few reporters, waves at people, signs a few autographs. But what is going on? Who is he? His name was Samuel Warner. He was the son of William Warner, a spy and a smuggler. In his youth, he'd experimented with chemicals, trying to make explosives. But later, he joined the British Royal Navy. He became a captain. He took service with Pedro I of Brazil. And it seems that when he was in Brazil, on an adventure, he became lost in the Amazon jungle, was taken in by a strange tribe, and whilst with them, went through various odd rituals, including the imbibing of a liquid drawn from a vine, which gave him intense mystical visions and gave him the belief that he now had strange mystical powers. When he returned to England, he used these powers and his knowledge of explosives to develop what he called a psychic torpedo. He carried out an experiment on a lake in Essex where it appeared that he had remotely exploded a ship. Of course, this came to the attention of the authorities who were very interested. After all, if such a weapon existed, it would give the British Navy, already a force to be reckoned with, an unbeatable hand in military affairs with their enemies. And Samuel Warner had arranged for another experiment to be carried out in Brighton Bay, where, as we've seen and heard, he successfully and remotely destroyed a ship moored out at sea using, apparently, a teleportation bomb. Of course, many people were skeptical. People claimed it must have been dropped by a hot air balloon. But how would you do that over the windy English Channel without anybody seeing? Other people said he must have trained a bird to do it. Seems unlikely. Other people said it was some submarine weapon shot out under the sea. But after all, if he had invented a submarine torpedo, why not sell that to the British government? And, in fact, it was Samuel Warner's intention to sell his weapons. He wanted £200,000 for each. Not an inconsiderable sum, and not one which the British government was prepared to extend to him without him revealing the secrets of his teleportation bomb. This he declined to do, and they declined to pay, leaving him no other choice, he said, but to find other patrons who would pay for his psychic engineering secrets.
Listener, let's walk around to the fourth side of the Courtois Mausoleum, the side with the door. What is the scene we see appear before us now? It's another interior, the interior of a richly appointed drawing room in the middle of the 19th century. On a divan sits a beautifully dressed middle-aged woman. She's been weeping. By the window stands a well-dressed, academic-looking sort of gentleman. He's looking out of a Wilton Crescent in Belgravia, one of the richest addresses in the city of London. His name is Joseph Bonamy. He's an architectural historian, an illustrator, a curator at the Soane Museum and the British Museums. But most significantly, he's an Egyptologist. He's spent much time in Egypt, studying its ancient secrets. Some people have even said he's a tomb raider. He turns to comfort the woman who's been crying on the divan. But at that moment, a doorbell below rings. And shortly afterwards, a maid enters the room with a card on a silver plate. Hannah Courtois looks at it, for it is Hannah Courtois. Nods, the maid disappears and returns shortly with Captain Samuel Warner. In recent years, Hannah Courtois has become what we would call a society hostess at her wonderful house in Belgravia. She entertains intellectuals, academics, artists. She's particularly interested in Joseph Bonamy and his knowledge of ancient Egypt. Like many Victorians, like the ancient Egyptians, she's obsessed with death, obsessed with time, obsessed with psyche, obsessed with destiny. And now she and Joseph Bonamy and Captain Samuel Warner, as they have been on many previous occasions, are engaged in deep and intense conversation. They have come up with a fantastical idea. Hannah will commission them. Joseph Bonamy with his occult, ancient Egyptian mystical knowledge. And Captain Warner with his strange psychic engineering skills. They are to build her a time machine. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's ridiculous. But is it? Or rather, should we say, is it ridiculous that they believed that they could do so? This, after all, was an era where science and mysticism had become blended together and where barely a year went by without some other extraordinary discovery being made. So the question is, did Hannah believe that Joseph Bonamy Captain Samuel Warner might be able to build her a time machine. And why would she want one? It's time to open the door and enter the mausoleum. For I can think of three reasons. First of all, for the hell of it. I mean, if you've got the means and they've got the method, how fun would it be? You could travel into the future, into the far distant future to find out what will become of us. 
you could travel back in time to ancient Egypt to find out if there was a Jesus or a Buddha to go back to visit the dinosaurs. And a second reason, how about this? You've become one of the richest women in London. You fought your way up from poverty and abuse. You've become somebody. And now it is all about to be taken away. For the reason that Hannah Courtois was crying is that she'd received the news that she, in fact, was running out of time. Her medical condition meant that it was unlikely that she would survive much longer. How unfair to achieve and attain and acquire so much to have it lost. So perhaps she hoped via a time machine she could escape this life, this mortal coil, escape into eternity. But there's a third reason, the reason that I find most compelling. I ask you, listener, have you never, as Sher sang, wanted to turn back time? Is there not an incident, an event in your past that you've often wished you could undo? Or perhaps there's something that you wish you had done, some regret, some mistake, some missed opportunity. Perhaps Hannah Courtois wanted a time machine so that she could go back to an evening in 1800 when a man, a young man, a handsome young man, whom she loved, whom perhaps had had a dalliance with her, as young men were wont to do, a certain Charles Prince Boothby, had blown his brains out because of money. Money which she now had in abundance. Money which he owed to a sharkish, miserly, vicious old moneylender. A moneylender like John Courtoy. A man whose life and lust she had submitted to for the sake of money. Wouldn't Hannah want to go back to that evening? To turn back time? To stop that beautiful young man from blowing his brains out? Might not you? Hannah and two of her daughters are said to rest in the Courtois Mausoleum, though it was built a few years after her death. The mausoleum itself stands mysteriously, as it always has, guarding its secrets. Not a stone's throw away is the grave of Joseph Bonamy. It's more modest than the Courtois Mausoleum, so it is decorated by Egyptian hieroglyphs and an image of the ancient Egyptian dog-headed god Anubis, the psychopomp, the guider of souls. Anubis appears to be resting on a tomb, a tomb which looks uncannily like the Courtois mausoleum, though he is facing in a direction which experts in these matters say implies a soul lost in time. Somewhere else in the cemetery, Captain Samuel Warner is also buried in an unmarked grave. His death was mysterious, murder, some said, and he took with him to his unmarked grave 
the secrets of his psychic engineering. So, listener, to finish, a few questions for you. Do you think it possible that Joseph Bonamy and Samuel Warner built or tried to build a time machine for Hannah Courtois? And that that time machine is or is in the Courtois Mausoleum? After all, what better place to park a time machine than in a London cemetery, where it would remain undisturbed and unmoved down the years? And do you think that Hannah Courtois is in the mausoleum or wandering through time? And do you think it might be possible that I have entered the Courtois mausoleum myself? And if I had entered, do you think that I would have been surprised, shocked by what I found there? I'd love to answer that question, but I'm afraid. I'm out of time. Catch you later.